Please join me in turning to Hosea chapter 5 this morning. We're in between book studies. We just finished a verse-by-verse study through Ezra and Nehemiah. We're headed somewhere else next week, but we're in the middle. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at Hosea in a passage in chapter 5. Hosea is one of the later uh, books in the Old Testament, just past the book of Daniel, Hosea 5. Have you had this experience? You wake up, maybe start getting ready for your day, and you notice something's not quite right. You discover some weird ache or pain, maybe some weird splotch or rash that definitely wasn't there the night before when you went to bed. You think, oh, I should probably get that looked at at some point, and my doctor will be able to see me in like seven months. But at the meantime, what do you do? Well, you do what all good modern folk do. You head to Google, and you start Googling. Maybe Google can tell me what's wrong with me today. If you're the kind of person that uh, likes scary movies or a good spooky campfire story, I- I've, got, I've got something for you. Just go to Google at some point and type in the words, why is my, and then uh, see what the suggested searches are that drop down. Because those are searches that are so popular that have been searched so many times that Google assumes you are also wondering the answer, and so they offer to auto-complete it for you. So you go to Google, you put why is my, and then you see what other people are searching. And man, some of the things that people are searching, that a lot of people are searching, they're going to stick with you for the rest of the day. I tell you, it's, it's no fun. Now, the reason that we search for things like that is because when things go wrong, we want to set them right, right? When you wake up and you've got some weird pain in your neck, you don't think, oh, great, this is how I live now. You think, well, that's not right. What can we do to fix that? Uh, It's part of the special nature that God has given us as human beings. We want to fix things. We want to repair things when they're broken. And of course, that doesn't just apply to aches and pains or ratches or moles or things like that. It's at every level, in the heart, in our homes, in our hamlets, in our nation. You know, if polls are to be believed, and of course, we need to take, you know, news polls with a grain of salt, but every poll out there says that a majority of Americans feel that our nation is not headed in the right direction. Doesn't matter who's taking the poll, doesn't matter who they're asking, doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum they're on, everybody says that we're not headed in the right direction in their opinion. I couldn't find a single poll that found even 51% of people surveyed thinking that we're doing okay as a society. Another quick Google search, this time using the phrase, how to fix America, will yield many, many different articles and results, many different suggestions and philosophies from outlets like Forbes, Politico, New Statesman, The Atlantic, Washington Post. One of them gives eight simple steps. That's good. The next one had 38 ideas. Let's go back to the other one. I don't know what those other 30 are for, but another still says it will take 52 different adjustments. We need to buy that guy's book in order to find out what they are. Of course, we're in the middle of campaign season right now where uh, candidates are making lots and lots of wild promises, guaranteeing that uh, they know how to steer us all to a better future. And in our pundit-saturated culture, there's a constant flow of ideas and philosophies and uh, so-called know-how. And frankly, it's just hard not to get swept away. We like being swept away in these sorts of things in our culture and in the time that we live in. But we've got to remind ourselves of what God has said plain and clear in his word. He says that the troubles in our nation are bigger than what's being argued in debates 
And things that are broken within human hearts are way beyond what Google's algorithm can diagnose. You know, our culture is in bad shape right now. Our culture is terribly confused uh, right now with new and worsening problems at seemingly every level. No matter the persuasion, just about everyone agrees right now that we as a people find ourselves in a measure of trouble, that we are deteriorating as a nation, not improving. Now, sadly, many of these assessments can extend not only into Capitol buildings, but into church buildings too. When we look around at the sort of general state of Christianity in the West and in America, we often find a weakness or an apathy or a sort of spiritual delirium. Not everywhere, not all of us, not exclusively, but convincingly in many corners of the body. God's people who are meant to live in dynamic power and dynamic victory are often overrun with the same confusion, the same apathy, the same instability that characterizes our unredeemed culture. That's just the way things are right now. Now, did you know that all of this is very similar to the state of circumstances in the nation of Israel during the 8th century BC? In many ways, it was very similar to what we see around us today. On the one hand, there was economic prosperity, a measure of security, The nation had won some helpful victories and expanded their territory here and there. But at the same time, there was an undercurrent of instability. There was widespread spiritual disorder, the deterioration of true devotion and true faithfulness to the Lord. It was a time of deep, deep division among God's people and in the nation. In fact, the nation had been divided into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And this division was so sharp that violent clashes would often break out between these countrymen, men who had been uh, from the same uh, father, Jacob, and the 12 tribes were going to war together off and on. In the wallet, God's special people were doing all right, but a wider view showed that they were far, far off course. As students of the Bible, none of us look back at the period of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and say, that's where Israel wanted to be. That's where God wanted Israel to be at. No, they were at a huge distance from where the Lord wanted them to be. And we can read the history of that deterioration in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And what we see there is that when problems would arise domestically or with their enemies, they would often try to patch or solve them themselves with the kind of human reasoning that we hear championed on every news station 24 hours a day in our own time. The prosperity in Israel had made them very self-oriented and had made them self-sufficient. They didn't feel like they had any more need to be turning to God for help and for guidance and for uh, supply. And for quite some time, they didn't realize just how wrong things had gone and how sick they were as a people. More importantly, uh, and more significantly, they didn't know that judgment was at the door about to wipe them out and crush them. It wasn't because they hadn't been warned. It shouldn't have come as a surprise to them, but it was because they weren't willing to believe the warnings and take an honest look at themselves. During this period, God sent many prophets to plead with his people and try to rescue them, to show them the clear path back to where the Lord wanted them to be. There were four of them whose work survives particularly on the pages of Scripture, Isaiah, Micah, Amos, and Hosea during this particular time period. As Israel continued her self-destructive behavior, God sent an impassioned and a heartbreaking letter through the words and life of his prophet Hosea. Hosea. 
It's a letter that explains what was wrong with the nation and with individuals and how they could pull back from the brink of destruction, the destruction that was coming. They could avoid it. They could be saved by embracing the God who offers the only hope and the only help that could fix what was wrong in their hearts and their homes and their nation. Of course, the book of Hosea was not just a love letter written to 8th century Israel. It's written to anyone who will listen. That's why it has been preserved and uh, delivered to us. One of the crescendos of this letter comes in chapter 5, and it starts in verse 13. Let me read our passage for us. It says, When Israel and Judah saw how sick they were, Israel turned to Assyria, to the great king there. But he could not neither help them nor cure them. I will be like a lion to Israel, like a strong young lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces. I will carry them off, and no one will be left to rescue them. Then I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and turn to me. For as soon as trouble comes, they will earnestly search for me. You know, in this whole discussion, there are really two major levels to consider. It sort of reminds me of one of those uh, pictures that looks like both a duck and a rabbit. Have you seen that online? Do you see the duck first? Do you see the rabbit first? Or a few years ago, what was it, that dress? It was either black or gold, right? And people said, you know, it's this way or that way. There's always something like that popping up where the same object will be viewed in two different ways, depending on who's looking at it and the angle. You know, if you're a Christian here today, Hosea speaks to us about our walk with the Lord. It addresses whether we're following hard after him and the complexities of living life with an earthly society or within an earthly society while also staying devoted to a heavenly king and his desires and his ultimate will. But if you're not a Christian, there's really nothing complex about this passage. There's just one simple issue for you found on these pages. You're going to die and enter a Christless eternity. That's what the Bible explains and declares. For you, it's like you're in the midst of a natural disaster and you need immediate rescue. You know, when the floodwaters come or when the big earthquake hits, uh, you know, and you're somebody who's trapped under rubble or you're in the midst of a flood and you're trapped on the roof as the waters rise. None of those people are thinking, how am I going to make my schedule work this week? You know, we've got gymnastics on this day and then I've got this meeting and I've got that. I've got to get to the grocery store. We also got to go over here. Nobody's thinking about that uh, when they're trapped under rubble, right? No, for anyone who isn't a Christian here, this is a life and death message. A day of judgment is most definitely coming. The Bible explains that when you die, you will face judgment. You may live through today, you may live through tomorrow, but you know what? You may not, and I may not. And Hosea explains that there is only one hope, only one Savior, and that is Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins so that you could be forgiven if you're willing to believe and be born again. That's the great message of the gospel. If you're a Christian, though, there's a bit more complexity here. The book as a whole is written to God's people primarily, people who were still bringing sacrifices from time to time. They were still performing some of the rituals, and yet God explained that they were about to be judged nationally and individually because while their lips said one thing, their lives said another. And consequently, they had no real relationship with the Lord. They had no spiritual power. They were making no progress and they were breaking God's heart. Not everyone, of course. There were those who were faithful to God through it all, no matter what. And those individuals were used in significant and lasting ways. People like Hosea and others that we can read about in the Old Testament. Now, when Hosea started his ministry, in many ways, things were good in Israel. 
at least according to the way that people measure good. Sure, their leaders weren't godly and they weren't honoring the Lord. The nation really wasn't serving its purpose as a light to the Gentile world. But the economy was up. Barns were full, swords were sharp, and the people could go and worship in whatever fashion they wanted. And yet, despite that prosperity, they were absolutely crumbling as a nation. In our text, Hosea records a moment when, like the prodigal son in that parable, they sort of awake from their stupor for a moment and take a look around and realize just how bad things had gotten. Verse 13 opens with that realization. It says, when Israel and Judah saw how sick they were. Pause there for a moment. How sick were they? Well, throughout the book, the great physician had been very detailed in his diagnosis of just what was going on in the nation. Of course, we remember the idolatry. That's sort of the big headline that stands out to us as we think back on Bible history. They had turned to the Baals and the Ashtoreths and other foreign gods doing detestable things with them. But there was more than that. As we go through Hosea, we see the list of the diagnosis, all the things that were broken. They were no longer in love with the Lord. What they did do in his name was simply going through the motions. They were no longer relying on God, but instead on political alliances. They were setting up leaders without consulting the Lord and without his consent. They acted as if the law, the word of God, did not apply to them, but just to others. They resisted the prophets who tried to warn them. They were dishonest in their business dealings. And while they were building themselves great palaces and cities, they had forgotten their maker. In general, the Lord characterized them by saying this, you don't know me anymore. And it was true. Sure, they had a traditional affiliation with this God, but they didn't walk with him. They didn't rely on him. They didn't obey him. They didn't give themselves to him. They didn't love him. They didn't know him. He was somebody they used to know or that their ancestors used to know. And you know, all of this was a big deal to the Lord. Though he is full of love and grace and long-suffering towards the people of the earth and though he was long-suffering towards the people of Israel during this time, he could not let the poison of their sin continue to spread. It was a poison that they were willingly drinking day by day, by the way. No one forced it upon them. They took it themselves. The antidote to this poison wasn't going to be found in some candidate or program or some strategic partnership. No, only God's righteousness could counteract what was killing them. The problem was, in this case, Israel turned to what we might call alternative medicine instead of to the great physician. Look at verse 13 again. When Israel and Judah saw how sick they were, Israel turned to Assyria, to the great king there, but he could neither help nor cure them. Back in the 1970s, there was an ad campaign to teach people that sugar would help you lose weight, if only, right? <laughs> I'd weigh like 110 pounds if that was true. One ad read this. It was great. I found it online. Diet hint. Have a soft drink before your main meal. Sugar just might be the willpower you need to curb your appetite. Yes. In the 1940s, some dentists recommended that you smoke cigarettes to strengthen your teeth. That's a good ad. I liked that one. And then, of course, there's mercury, right? Long used as a helpful medicine. It was once the most popular medicinal metal. Mercury was touted as the cure for syphilis, indigestion, old age, and almost everything else. People from Chinese emperors to U.S. presidents took it for healing, but in the meantime, it was actually leading to things like paralysis, insanity, loss of motor control, neurolog neurological damage, and death. 
We look back and we say, well, of course you can't take a mercury pill to cure what's wrong with you. You're going to die. You're going to make things so much worse. And yet that's what people were doing. And you know, turning to Assyria when they needed help was just as bad as taking a mercury pill. The so-called great king there was only great at killing and double-crossing, torture, all sorts of horrors. He was no friend to God's people. No, he was more like the abusive ex-boyfriend who promised never to hurt them again as long as they just did what he said. And they just kept going back, kept going back, kept going back. In the meantime, Hosea was trying to explain to Israel about who God really is, describing him as the kind, loving, compassionate God that he is, painting him in this way, that he's the wonderful husband who doesn't stop loving his dear Israel even when she's unfaithful to him time and time again. That's our God. That's the God of the Bible, a God whose love is, according to Hosea 14, without bound, a love with no bounds. Yet they turned to Assyria, and the thinking was this. After all, they've got chariots, they've got horses, they've got spears and shields, They'll cure what ails us. They looked for a temporal answer to an eternal problem. And you know, human effort cannot solve spiritual problems. Now, we as individuals usually aren't tempted to make contact with, you know, some foreign power, some foreign government and say, hey, can you come solve the issue that's happening in my workplace right now? Most of you probably didn't send a cable over to North Korea and say, hey, could you flex the military might? Because, man, Susie in accounting is really just giving me trouble. Or I'm having this dispute with my family member, or this or that is going on. But the principle is the same. We can't solve spiritual problems with human efforts. It just doesn't work. It's an equation that doesn't fit. And so... Uh, we need to realize what the Bible is explaining. The people here had realized that something was desperately wrong in their hearts and in their nation. They saw how sick they were, but they looked for a fix in all the wrong places. Maybe Assyria can help, or maybe Egypt can help, or maybe if we pile up more wealth for ourselves or build ourselves better palaces, or maybe if we experiment with some other religions. They tried all of these different things to address these issues. And all the while, God, who loved them so much, was pleading with them to recognize their spiritual sickness before it got to such an advanced stage. He tried to explain to them that he had a plan and a power to solve everything that was broken in their nation, everything that was broken in their communities and in their families and in their individual lives. He says, yeah, I can, I can address these issues I can do more for you than you could ever ask or imagine. All those things that you really want, that satisfaction and peace and security and those sorts of things, I can provide that for you. But not if you're going to drink poison to yourself and walk away from me and reject me. He kept trying to tell them over and over again, and yet their sickness kept advancing more and more. His plan was to restore them to right standing with him, to firmly establish them, as a nation and as individuals so that they could progress and produce spiritual fruit. His plan was to make right what they had done wrong. And you know, that's the plan he's still working out today. God is a God of reconciliation. It's not just what he wanted to do with Israel. He wants to do that with my life and your life, just to make us in right standing and into close communion with him so that he can plant us firmly and and bear fruit out of our lives and use us to shine as lights in the darkness. This is the same work that he's doing today. 
Now, to accomplish this plan, the Lord would show great power on their behalf. He made some big promises to Israel about the kind of power that he would pour through their lives and all around them. He promised to unite the split nation. Who thought that would be possible? Nations, they were killing each other, warring with each other, taking towns from each other, butchering each other. He says, yeah, I can unite this nation again. He promised to deliver them from their enemies, enemies that had some real teeth, by the way. He said, yeah, I can, I can protect you from your enemies. I can deliver you. He promised to heal their wounds and cover their sin. The outpouring of his power would be so great that he said even the animals would be held back from hurting them. It should be noted that Israel constantly rejected the Lord's offer, and so we still look forward to the fulfillment of these promises in his earthly thousand-year kingdom. These promises that he made to Israel, they're not canceled. They're not transferred. He made them. He will keep them. And that's why we read in other passages that talk about God's kingdom. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Children will be able to play with snakes, those sorts of things. He will keep his promises. But he is saying here, this is the kind of power that I pour out on behalf of my people as they walk with me and allow me to do my work in their lives. But if they wanted to be a part of God's plan and receive the power he was talking about, they would have a part to play. They would have to cooperate in a very simple way. Sadly, Israel still wasn't going to go God's way here in Hosea 5. And so in verse 14, we read this. God says, I will be like a lion to Israel like a strong young lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces. I will carry them off and no one will be left to rescue them. You know, in the Bible, God depicts his character and his work in many different ways. One of the images he uses many times is that of a lion. Uh, It's throughout both Testaments. For example, Jesus Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. God as a lion in all of his strength and dominion and matchless fierceness. He wanted to be their king. Uh, He wanted to be a lion to them like Mufasa is depicted in the classic Disney cartoon, right? Mufasa in that great cartoon is depicted as a king that all the subjects recognize as powerful, all the subjects recognize as good, a king they love, a king who serves them, a king who can be trusted. And he said in Hosea chapter 11 that one day he was going to roar like a great lion on their behalf and gather up his people from wherever they are all over the earth. But now here they were rejecting him as king. And so he was still a lion, but now a lion that would fight against them, a lion they could not withstand or escape. And at this point, let me address any unbeliever here, Uh, anyone who has not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You don't believe that he died on the cross. You've never repented of your sins and turned to him for salvation. You know, you may like to think about God as some force or as an old man with a beard in the sky, something like that. You may like to not think about him at all, but he is a lion. He is real and he is alive. He is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And if you will not bow to him at the cross, the Bible makes it clear you are going to bow to him at his great white throne judgment. And there, after you do acknowledge once and for all that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Lord, all that you've ever done is going to be judged. The Bible says that every one of your deeds, every one of your secrets, every empty word you've spoken, it's going to be measured out and judged, and you will be exposed to the penalty of that sin. It's not that Christians haven't done wrong things. 
We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But for those who bow to Jesus at the cross and say, yes, I believe, Lord, you are my savior and you are my king and I turn from my sin and I want to follow you and I want to give you control of my life. It's that Jesus is able to deal with those sins right there at the cross to cover them and to forgive them, to remove them as far as the east is from the west. But for those who bypass the cross and say, no, thank you. I'll go my own way. I'll, I'll do more good than I've done bad in my life. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'm a generally good person or I don't need to believe in this God of the Bible. Well, the Bible explains. Then you're gonna stand before the judge under the guilt of your sin with no savior, with no redeemer. And then you will have to pay the penalty for your sin and the wages of sin is death. And every one of your deeds, every one of your secrets will be judged. You'll be exposed to that penalty and you will be cast alive into the lake of fire for suffer for all eternity. Not because God wants that to happen. God wants the opposite. The Bible says very plainly that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God doesn't want you to die and be sent to hell it's because you refuse to be rescued by him. He does want to save. Look at verse 15. God says, then I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and turn to me. For as soon as trouble comes, they will earnestly search for me. God has a plan for nations and for individuals. He has all the power necessary to accomplish it, but he waits for us to play our part. God is a gentleman. He's a God of love. He does not force himself on people. He waits for those who will respond to him. H.I. Ironside wrote this. He said, observe, God would not forget Israel, nor should they be finally cast out of his presence, but he would withdraw himself from them, leaving them to their spiritual famine and desolation till they realized their true condition and owned it before him. If these people wanted to have what was broken in their lives and in their nation repaired, if they wanted to have a meaningful, satisfied life, if they wanted to save their country, they had a part to play as individuals. It was very simple. Confess and turn to the Lord. God was always in a place where he could be found. What an amazing thing that the Bible reveals to us. You can find God. We may not be able to see him, but he is not hidden from us in the sense that we can't find him. He's one prayer away. He's one repentance away. That's not only true of Israel, that's true for us as well. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a promise, it's a guarantee. God is able to be found any moment of any day, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done. God is still in his place as he's depicted here in Hosea Five, Because he took his place on the cross, he is now in his place of highest glory at the right hand of the Father. He still has a plan. He still has all the power. He still loves the people of the earth and is determined to save them, individuals, families, and nations. Hosea calls him the one savior, the only helper, the God who answers prayers and cares for you. When trouble comes to a life or to a home or to a nation, he alone can cure what is really wrong. We don't need another candidate. We don't need another human philosophy. We don't need some stockpile. We need the power of Jesus Christ working in and through us. That's the deal. 
What our nation needs is more Christians who are living the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit. What our state needs is more Christians bearing fruit and and shining as light in the world, as being salt of the earth. That's what we need. The Lord said that when he would one day win back the hearts of the people Israel, he would transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. What a great image that this God can transform your valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. And you know, someday Israel will do the right thing. Hosea 6.1 says this, Israel speaking, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Now he will heal us. He has injured us and he will, now he will bandage our wounds. In just a short time, he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of the dawn or the coming of rains in the early spring. You know, we live in the interval between Hosea 5.15 and 6 verse 1. There's a gap in between those. One day that is going to be said by Israel and the Lord will be able to complete his plan for them as a special nation. And so we live in the interval right now, but we can have a Hosea 6 attitude today, right now. It means confessing those things that have gone wrong. It means repenting of any Assyria we're turning to instead of the Lord and embracing him and knowing him, our beloved Savior, trusting him to lead and empower, to believe that he has the diagnosis and the treatment for what needs to be made right in our lives and in our community. Psalm 20, verse 7 says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. In 1973, Jim Croce, the singer-songwriter who gave us Bad Bad Leroy Brown and Time in a Bottle, died in a tragic plane crash at just 30 years of age. A few days after his funeral, his wife Ingrid received a heartbreaking letter of love that Jim had mailed just before his death. In the letter, he made great promises to her. He said he was going to be done traveling. He didn't want to be apart from the family anymore. He was going to live a life with her and their son. He said he was going to give up being a musician and write other things instead so that they could be together. He wrote this, quote, when I get back, everything will be different. We're going to have a life together, Ing, I promise. But for Ingrid, the letter came too late. There was nothing that could be done. You know, Hosea, as a letter, may have been written more than 2,500 years ago. But God is still alive, and his love for you is still the same. It's not too late for anyone here to really know him again or maybe for the first time. It's not too late for us to live in his presence and to press into him. Ours is a sick and dying nation. Some here are perhaps sick and dying, about to step into the afterlife without a savior. Or maybe you're here and you're a Christian, but maybe your marriage is sick and dying, or you find yourself in some other valley of trouble. Just remember, our God is a rescuer. He does not fail. What we need is not some human effort or material provision. What we need is God's plan being worked out with his power in our lives. Look at the power of God that can change everything, unite a split nation, deliver from any enemy, heal every wound. Power over creation, power over time. God can do all of these things. We don't need some false human effort. We need him. There's no hope for salvation or satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ, but he is readily available to us right there in his place waiting for people to press on to know him. 
Now, maybe you're like Hosea himself. This isn't a message that says everybody's failing. That's not the case. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now and and revealing to you some Assyria in your heart that you need to turn away from and go back to the Lord, but maybe not. In that case, maybe you're like Hosea, someone who is following hard after the Lord, honoring God despite what's going on in the world and the culture around us. Even in the darkness of Israel during this terrible period of time, there were faithful servants who were used in really significant ways, and that can continue to be you. You can be someone like Oded, the prophet, who came out and met the army of Israel after they had attacked their brothers in Judah. He came out and met the army, blood on their swords still, and and he made one powerful, courageous statement to the people, and it led to the freeing of 200,000 women and children who had been taken captive as slaves from Judah. If you know the Lord in the sense of Hosea 6, don't grow weary in doing good. Press on as God continues to lead you and empower you. Continue, no matter what's going on around you, and trust that the God uh, of the Bible can work through you in dramatic and significant and lasting ways. Hosea closes with this verse, which puts it all into summary for us, whether we're speaking to an individual, a family, or a nation. Hosea 14, verse 9. Let those who are wise understand these things. Let those with discernment listen carefully. The paths of the Lord are true and right, and righteous people live by walking in them. But in those paths, sinners stumble and fall. Let's pray.